Good evening, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. This small, unassuming little psalm can seem quite perplexing to us at first. It's one of the shortest psalms to read, but it's one of the longest psalms to learn. It speaks of a young child, but it contains in it the experience of the most mature of Christians. This psalm is quick to memorize, but it takes a lifetime to master. In my study of this psalm, I came across uh, an article by David Pallison, and I could do no better than his introduction, so I'll read a, a brief portion of it to you. God speaks to us in many different ways. When you hear in Scripture, now it came to pass, then you should settle down for a good story. When God asserts, I am, then we should trust His self-revelation. When He promises, I will, then we should bank on it. When He tells you, you shall or you shall not, then we should do what He says. And Psalm 131 is in yet a different vein. Most of it is holy eavesdropping, He says. You have intimate access to the inner life of someone who has learned composure. And then he invites you to come along. Psalm 131 is show and tell for how to become peaceful inside. And that's one of the goals of this psalm, for the people of God to have a calmed and quieted soul, a contented soul, rather than what we have all experienced, a disquieted, a restless, even a noisy soul. This noise of the soul can take many forms, and it will bear many different kinds of fruit. It can be a low-level background noise of irritability and frustration. It could be discontentment that spreads like a rash of the soul, irritating everything that it touches. This noise of the soul can be despondency, depression, melancholy. Or it can give rise to arrogance and nasty pride. We have all tasted this noise of the soul, but what are we to do with it? How can we rid ourselves of it? Well, let's read Psalm 131 and see what David says about this seemingly universal condition of the soul. David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have a calmed and quieted soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Holy Father, we pray that you would help us to see the truth of this psalm and through that truth to see ourselves. But may our gaze not stop there. May we look to Christ, and by looking to our great Savior, may we have calmed, composed, restful, and quieted souls. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our text has three verses, and these will serve as my three main points this evening. We will see the result, the reason, and the root of contentment, or of a quieted soul. The result the reason, and the root. First, let's look at verse 1 and see the result. The result is humility, humble submission. David says in verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. 
My eyes are not raised too high. He is not proud. And humility is the result or the effect of the soul that has experienced what we'll see in a minute in verse 2. Proud souls are noisy souls, disquieted souls. This pride can manifest itself in a host of different ways. Anxiety, irritability, harshness, despondency, frustration, all sorts of things that can disturb an otherwise quiet soul. A interesting exercise that's found in Pallison's article that I referenced earlier is uh, helpful to illustrate this point for us. He says that we can take this psalm and we can invert it and read it as an anti-psalm. We turn it on its head in order to illustrate the correlating truths. And so look at your text of the Psalm 131 and listen as I read through Pallison's anti-psalm. He says, Self, my heart is proud, or I'm absorbed in myself, and my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So of course I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes up naturally like a hungry infant fussing on its mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and my worries. I scatter my hope onto anything and everybody all the time. This is a helpful illustration for us to see the connection between pride and and our noisy souls. Pride makes us cast our hope on something or someone else other than God, which invariably makes us anxious and weary and restless and noisy. But it's not just our relationship to God that's the problem. Pride leads us to have a standard, even universal physical expression of arrogance, haughty eyes. Everyone knows this to be true. Every culture knows what it means to look down upon someone to turn our eyes up and to look down our nose at someone. You see, bare pride, pride alone in itself, says I am right in myself. But haughty eyes say I'm right compared to you. Haughty eyes are critical of others. They're quick to judge. Why'd you do it that way? If you would just listen to me, if you would just do what I say, then we would not be having this problem. If you'd have done it my way and in my timing, then all of this would be over. See, a haughty person doesn't need to hear advice from someone else. They already know how to fix all the world's problems. They don't need to respect others. They don't need to deal charitably with others. They don't need to have patience towards others because all that matters is their respect, their own treatment, and their own timing. Even the flip side of the coin is related to pride. self belittling tendencies, right? Low self-esteem, self-pity, self-hatred, fearfulness, timidity, fears of failure, fears of rejection. Each of these is fundamentally expressing a pride, a pride of failing, a pride of intimidation, a pride of despairing. But David here says he hasn't done that. He hasn't an elevated view of himself, nor does he have haughty eyes. He goes on to say in verse 1, I do not occupy myself with things too great, too marvelous for me. Even as a young man, with the anointing of the prophet Samuel, David did not take his own ascension to the throne and the toppling of Saul into his own hands. He waited patiently on the Lord and his timing. 
He was content with his station, his level, his understanding, his status. He did not seek to grasp after something that has not yet been handed to him. I wonder if you've ever felt such temptation to grasp something greater or to be preoccupied with things too great for you. In this life, trials will come, and with them will come a peculiar temptation for preoccupation. We can be tempted to think that if I just occupy my mind with it, turn it over again and again, chew on the situation, replay the reels in my mind again and again, then from that preoccupation will come some sort of illuminating and liberating insight into why. But such preoccupation is false hope. Choosing to be preoccupied with things that have not been revealed to us is choosing to be discontented and unrestful, disquieted in our souls. Preoccupation with matters too high for us is a sure recipe for a disquieted and noisy soul. Sinclair Ferguson says that contentment is the fruit of a mindset that understands its limitations. Contentment is the fruit of a mindset that understands its limitations. An unhealthy preoccupation with and desire for knowledge that is beyond what God has revealed to us is a subtle but dangerous expression of pride. Ferguson continues that saying such preoccupations suffocate, they strangle contentment. And when you hear or feel such temptations in your own life, they ought to remind you of whispers of what could be heard back in the Garden of Eden. You can hear Satan coaxing Adam. Come on, express your discontentment with God and His providence. Be dissatisfied with your lot in life. I know God's given you everything else in the garden, but He held back that one really good tree. And if you had just... If you could just taste the tree, the fruit from that one tree, then, then you could have satisfaction. Then you could be content. But he's holding it back from you. And behind such satanic lies of discontentment and dissatisfaction reveal an even deeper and darker problem. Discontentment in our circumstances shows us that it's not merely the circumstances that are the problem, but it's with God himself with whom we are discontent. Brothers and sisters, there is no contentment without refusing preoccupation with things too great for us. There is mystery in this life, and it will be there until we're gone. But hear these words from Charles Spurgeon that encourage us. He says, Happily for us, our happiness does not depend upon understanding the providence of God. We are able to believe when we are not able to explain. And we are content to leave a thousand mysteries unsolved rather than to tolerate a single doubt as to the wisdom and goodness of our Heavenly Father. The psalmist was content with leaving those thousand mysteries unanswered. He refused to preoccupy his mind with the mystery. Spurgeon continues, Let us consider for a while, is it not good for us to be puzzled and so forced to exercise our faith? See, we don't like to be puzzled. We don't naturally like to have things that are unclear and foggy and hazy for us. We want certainty. We want clarity. We want definiteness and detail. But part of the weaning process in this life is the presence of mystery without the preoccupation 
with that which puzzles us. Spurgeon continues saying, Would it be well for us to have all things so ordered that we ourselves could see the reason for every dispensation? Could the scheme of divine love be intended supremely, infinitely, and wisely if we could measure it according to our short line of wisdom? Should we not ourselves remain as foolish and conceited and spoiled and petted children if all things were arranged according to our judgment of what we think is fit and proper? Ah, it is well to be cast out of our depth and made into the, made to swim in the sweet waters of mighty love. We know that it is supremely blessed to be compelled to cease from self and to surrender both with and judgment and to lie passive in the hands of God. It is good for us to be cast in waters over our heads so that our faith might be exercised and God's goodness proved faithful yet again and that we might be further weaned from the love of this world. See, this, this truth is illustrated quite powerfully in a poem that was written by John Newton. The poem's called Prayer Answered by Crosses, and he eloquently describes the surprising and even painful method that God uses to wean us from this world. Newton wrote, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost to drive me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed and blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way. The Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. See, Newton's explaining for us that the trials in this life are too great for us to understand, but are employed by God to set us free from self and pride, from set us free from our lack of humility, and ultimately set us free that we might discover joy in Him and Him alone. And this leads to our second verse of the psalm, our second point, where we see the reason why David can have a restful rather than noisy soul. The reason. He writes... In verse 2, but I have, a, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I have calmed and quieted my soul, which has also been translated, I have composed and quieted my soul. David is gaining composure. He's gaining stability. Now, how did this happen? What is this process of spiritual weaning? Well, to compose one's soul literally means to raise it, to imagine a bulldozer leveling a house to the ground. 
to take something out of control and subdue it to nothing. Think of Jesus on the boat in the stormy sea. He merely speaks and the tempest is turned to nothing. Likewise, to quiet one's soul means to silence the tumultuous noise. It's to say, shh, to the desires of our flesh, to our preferences, to our opinions, to our fears, to our anxiety, our timing, our frustration. And we know from Pastor Sean's study of David's life that this composure of soul of soul in David is not apathy. It's not as if David is a man that was resigned to inactivity. He was a man of conscious, active dependence, not a sleepy passivity. Self-mastery, soul mastery is not a passive activity. On the contrary, composing one's soul, calming one's soul, is perhaps the most effortful endeavor that we might face in our Christian journey. But how do we do this? How did David do this? How does a proud and haughty-eyed man quiet his arrogant heart? How do we wean ourselves off the cares of this world? And how do we remove ourselves from a preoccupation for mysteries of why that have not been revealed to us? The short and sobering answer is that you can't. You cannot resolve yourself into humility. You can't muster up the strength on your own. You cannot beat your chest enough time in penance. You cannot cry enough tears, say enough chants, read enough books, listen to enough sermons to self-will yourself into a place of quietness. Can a leopard change his spots? God asks us in his word. No more can the leopard change itself than we can change our hearts and our own strength. You can only and will only produce lasting change in your heart by the work of God Himself. God is the answer. God is working through the Holy Spirit to replace the haughty hearts of His people and to put into them, in its place, a calm and quieted heart. On your own, you are not strong enough. You're not capable enough to do this. Any more than an infant can wean itself. On your own, not only are you unable to do it, but you'd never actually have the desire to do it. You see, we're born naturally proud. Our eyes come from the womb haughty. We're not only disposed to distrust God's providences, we hate them. And we hate Him. Our hearts are full of restless evil. We have tongues full of deadly poison. That's what Scripture teaches us. But the good news of God is that He has sent His Son to be the perfect child in our place. We were restless in heart, but He was at peace. We were bitter and angry in our circumstances, but He was content with God's plan. We were proud of ourselves and looked down our noses at, at everyone else. The Bible says that Christ is meek, lowly of heart. Imagine the king of the universe born in a stable, clothed in rags, killed like a criminal, buried in the grave. Such was our great king. And it's because of his calmed and quieted soul that we can have the same. 
He has promised us new hearts if we but believe. He has promised us peace, a quietness of heart that surpasses all understanding if we but turn away from our sin and submit to Him as our Master and Lord. We have to give up our preoccupations and our pride. We have to give up our arrogance and our attitude. For we who believe, we know that He has died for these things, and it is unbecoming for a child of God to continue to act in such ways. We have to put off the obsession with knowing that which has not been revealed to us. We must walk in humility and meekness. We must battle to calm and quiet our souls. And then and only then we might know the peace of God, regardless of our circumstances and our trials. That's the gospel of our Lord. But before we leave this second verse, let us look more closely at the analogy that David uses of a weaned child. Consider the process of weaning, for in it we see a picture of how we too are to be removed from the love of this world. See, a child is removed in the process of weaning from the thing that it naturally craves, the thing that brings him joy and satisfaction, the thing that soothes a raging appetite. And when the child is deprived of the breast of his mother, he is agitated He's rooting around, he's squirming, he's seeking what comfort he has known before. And when he can't immediately find what he seeks, he is fussy, he's frustrated, he can't get what he wants immediately. The source of his life and his health and his satisfaction and of his joy is removed from him. And he becomes noisy, enraged, he's kicking and screaming. It's not just children that act this way, by the way. Adults do the same thing. They may not be literally kicking and screaming, but you'll see them worrying, despairing, enraged, confused, discontent, jealous, envious. But the same child, after a little time has passed, and you'll see that he is successfully weaned, He seems to be a completely different child. A dramatic change has taken place. The child can sit in the lap of his mother quietly, giving attention not for his mother's breast, but for the baby food being sat next to him on the table. That process of weaning is like the process of us learning peaceful contentedness in this life. The process of us calming and quieting our soul is this process of becoming content. God is taking from us, so to speak, the milk of this world that we so crave. The things of this world that we thought could sustain us forever. And He's depriving us of them. Not out of spite, but that we might grow. Grow away from that which is deficient to produce our maturity and grow into dependence upon Him, the only means of our maturation. We're being weaned from the things of this world that could never sustain us. And that process can be frustrating. That process can be full of tears. It can be full of a sense of great loss. But he's weaning us from this fleeting and passing world that we might mature into peaceful satisfaction in him and in him alone. That's the reason. The process by which David can say, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Let's move on to the third verse. 
And here we mark a change. David has been having a divine conversation into which we've been eavesdropping, but now he turns his attention towards us. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This exhortation from David is the root of the whole endeavor. How can we be humble? How can we rid ourselves of a noisy and disquieted soul? Well, hope in God, David says. This is the root of the fruit that has been produced in verses 1 and 2. The hope that he speaks of is a substantive hope. The hope of the Bible is a theologically informed certainty. It's based upon God's revealed truth, and it's an assurance built upon God's faithfulness and His promises. It's not merely a wish, like, I hope I get to the go to the game this weekend. No, it's a confident assurance. But don't miss the truth here, which is so simple that it's easy to overlook. Hope in God calms the heart. It's hope in God and God alone that calms the heart. And conversely, misplaced hope brings turbulence. It brings unrest. It brings discontentment. It brings restlessness. So I ask you, where is your hope? Is your hope in some sort of different future, some other plan, a future that you would prefer, a future that had a different outcome, some other situation than what you're in right now? Or maybe it's not a different outcome, but it's a different time frame. I want what I want, and I want it now. And Proverbs tells us that a hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if your hope is in your plan, in your time frame, you're setting yourself up for the potential for great heart sickness, for restlessness of heart. If it doesn't come to pass in my way and in my timing, then my heart is noisy. It's disquieted. I am discontent because my hope was not in God. My hope was in my plan. You see, a calm and quieted soul is the fruit of a heart that hopes in God. He is wise enough to plan for our good. He's good enough to purpose it. He's strong enough to bring it about. And He has promised that He would withhold no good thing from those that walk uprightly. Hope in God, dear brothers and sisters. Read what He has revealed in His Word. Read of His promises. There will be mystery in this life. It is not going away. Trials and afflictions will come. But what He has revealed to us in His Word and by His action is certain and is sufficient to sustain us, even through the midst of the most perplexing trials. And not merely sustain us, but to actually calm and quiet our raging souls, even though the whole world and all of its turbulence is around us. We can be like a weaned child with its mother. George Mueller once wrote that there is never a time when we may not hope in God. Whatever the necessities, however great our difficulties, and though all appearances of help is impossible, our business is to hope in God. Our business dear Christian, is to hope in God. And if David could say that before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, how much more can we hope in God after the coming of Christ? Paul reminds us of God's love for us in Romans 8 when he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, 
all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We have been given the great antidote for our restlessness, Jesus Christ. Let us reflect upon the gift of grace seen in him. May we battle in the power of his might and against the restlessness remaining in our soul that we might say with David, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And if this quietness of heart is something that is completely foreign to you, if you have heard God's word proclaimed tonight and have been convicted of your haughty eyes and proud heart, then I urge you to come to Jesus and see of his mercy. See him as the meek and lowly Christ portrayed in Scripture. Read of his great love, even for the worst of sinners. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and by doing so, have your heart quieted within you. And we all may mature, being weaned from the love of this world, that we might have greater satisfaction in him. So, to close tonight, I thought it would be a good reminder for us to remember the words of a beloved hymn inspired from this song, Be Still My Soul. I wish we were together and could sing it, but alas, you'll have to settle for my recitation of this prayerful poetry. May these lyrics be the prayer of our heart as we seek to have a calm and quieted soul. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and to provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shalt thou better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrow and thy fears. Be still, my soul. The winds and waves shall know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord, when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and blessed we shall meet at last. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant us wisdom. Grant us your grace. Grant us that we might know a calmed and contented heart. Help us to be humble, to not have haughty eyes, and to find our strength in Christ and Christ alone. Encourage us, lift us up where we are drooping. Build us up where we are weak. In Christ's name, amen.